0: The real inside story on what actually happened in the 2022 elections and what it means for the future. Matt Robison, this is Beyond Politics. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Available on YouTube as a podcast on the Blue Amp channel, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Well, the 2022 election was a bit like the movie The Hangover. We all woke up the next day, found out we had a tooth missing, there was a tiger in the bathroom, the Democrats had a darn good night. Then we were left trying to piece together what the hell just happened. So for giant nerds like me and Paul, it was amazing to find out that one of the world's greatest polling experts had put together a whole webinar explaining exactly what had happened. The problem was it was mostly just available to insiders. And we wanted all of our viewers and listeners to get the exact same insights that the insiders got. So we knew we finally, after about two years of doing this show, had to drag her old friend Jeff Pollock on to the Beyond Politics show. If there were a Mount Rushmore of pollsters, Jeff (laughs) would be on it. Don't take it from me. The New York Times basically said that. He's the founding partner and president of Global Strategy Group. If you threw a paper airplane into a meeting of elected Democrats, which is recreationally fun, by the way, you'd be virtually certain to have it hit one of his clients. I could belabor how many there are, but just trust me, it's basically everyone. Jeff, welcome to Beyond
1: Politics. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Congressman. Good to be here. Nice to be able to share this. I don't know that I've ever heard Mount Rushmore. If it were, Matt, I think it'd probably be more like Mount Goldberg or something like that. It'd be much smaller Jewish <laughs> Mount, <laughs> Mount. Goldberg, <laughs> the Jewish version of Mount Rushmore. That That's something that's deserving
2: of exploration at some point. All right. Well, A mountain native, locks, nova. Exactly. <laughs> Bagels and cream cheese. cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Mount Rushmere. Exactly. Mount, that, Mount that Rush-mere.
0: <laughs> you take out your heart sucking candies and you go on a schlep. All right. So look, there's this thing that happens in yeah. campaigns that's really fun uh, for everyone, mostly the pollster. So what happens is the pollster has a new poll, and you have to have a meeting to talk about it. And Paul and I have been in like a million of these, and you presented at probably two billion of them. Everyone gathers around. The pollster fires up a PowerPoint, and you're about to hear the news, the dreadful news. It's kind of like going to the doctor. They put up a scan of your body and all you want to hear is like, doc, am I going to walk again? Like what's, what's the bottom line here? So you did this major scan of the electorate. What happened in 2022? Give it to a straight doc. What happened and why did Democrats perform so much better than we all expected?
1: Yeah. I mean, and so I, thank thanks, Matt. I mean, I did. So I put together, my firm put together this, this post-election analysis as we always have. And my chosen title for the presentation was what the fuck just happened. My staff rejected that. They say that I want to do that every two years anyway. So they said, maybe we should do something a little different. And in fact, talk about the election as what it was, which was a choice election. And I'll explain what that means in terms of choice, the play on the word choice in multiple ways. Mm. But let's sort of first set up the context. Context, Matt, of where you started, which is that we walked into election day thinking that we were screwed. And we thought that for very, very good reasons. Number one, Joe Biden's job approval rating was in the low 40s. My sentiments in terms of the country were very low. And in general, when we have these midterm elections, the party in power tends to lose. That's exacerbated by a low presidential job approval rating, suggesting that the Democrats could lose from a numerical perspective, could lose upwards of 45 seats in the House. Now, we actually all knew we couldn't lose 45 seats. Part of that is because, frankly, we had done worse two years before. So there weren't 45 seats to lose, but we still assumed that we were going to do very poorly based on all historical norms. In addition, you have two other things, which is split ticket voting shrinking, which it continues, which it has continued to do, and radical partisan polarization, meaning The Republicans hate the Democrats, the Democrats hate the Republicans is called partisan antipathy. And so if you've got this kind of lack of split ticket voting and people, each party hating the other, you would assume that things are not going to go well because the Democrats kind of need that split ticketing to happen given the president's job approval rating. But there were some indicators going into it. None of us believed it, but there were some indicators. And the biggest indicator was the generic congressional ballot, the generic congressional as Congressman Hodes knows very well, as, as, as all of us who follow politics, when we're going into the election, we ask questions as pollsters, who would you vote for if the election were held today? A Democrat or a Republican? So we don't give names. That's called the generic congressional ballot. And going into Election Day, the Republicans had about a percentage lead on that. That's pretty small relative to the fact that Joe Biden's job approval was about minus 12 or 13. And so there, what was going on with that gap? And so we looked at it in our data. And what we saw is you had a whole bunch of Democrats, 20% or so of Democrats, who said that they disapproved of Joe Biden, but yet none of them were voting for Republicans in that generic congressional. You had 70 plus percent of independents saying they disapproved of Joe Biden, yet only about a third were voting for Republicans in the congressional ballot. And so that data should have said to us, hmm, maybe we are poised. something a little bit better. But again, none of us believed it, not because we didn't believe the data, but because historic data says that midterm elections are going to go against the party of the president. And that's not what happened. And it's historic in so many ways. The the fact is that 70% of the toss-up races, according to the Cook Political Report, which is one of the neutral arbiters of sort of which races are, are up for grabs, The Democrats won 70% of those toss-ups. That's just remarkable. Take 2018, for example, where the Republicans won a third of the the toss-up seats, or 2014, where the Democrats only won 30%. So that's the kind of thing we were looking for. And it's not what happened, in part because of that Biden, that that split with the generic. But there's a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Democrats did incredibly well in governor's races. We won the Massachusetts, Maryland, and Arizona <clears throat> governor's races, taking them from Republicans. In fact, the only Repu- the only seat that we lost in the gubernatorial was Nevada. The Democrats held on to incredibly important states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, New York, Kansas, Oregon. These were some of these very, very tough races, and the Republicans held on to Florida and Georgia. This one's a little bit different. The governor's races are a teeny bit different than the federal stuff, I believe, and a little bit different than, than Biden. And in part, I believe it's because of COVID. The governors who did well responded to what their states wanted with COVID. That includes mm. Florida, by the way. I, I, so I may think that what Ron DeSantis was horrible. I may think he's an Im- immoral piece of shit. But the voters of Florida think that what he did during COVID was great. Evidently, the voters of Florida are okay losing 30, 40,000 people. It's fine. But, and Nevada is another example where I actually believe the voters punished Steve Sisolak, who I believe did the right thing. But the voters may have thought that he kept the state closed too long, as opposed to a state like Colorado, where Governor Polis shut the state down very quickly, but then actually opened it up quicker than some other Democratic governors. So I think COVID was a real winner for governors all over the place. Mm. Incumbent governors, I mean. State legislatures. The Democrats flipped state legislatures in Michigan, the House, the Senate, the Minnesota Senate, the Pennsylvania House, which hadn't even been on the board. None of us even thought... It was possible that happens on the back of Josh Shapiro, winning by double digits for governor, leading to trifectas for the Democrats in Massachusetts, Maryland, Michigan, and Minnesota. We have been losing state houses for years. That was an incredible thing. But one thing about all these congressional stuff that, that we're talking about, and I already mentioned the Biden thing, but part of it is also that it wasn't necessarily a national election. It was a collection of local stories. Some of the states moved sharply left like Pennsylvania and Arizona. Others move sharply right, like Florida and New York. And there are, again, different individual reasons for that. But why did the Democrats do so well in the context of this? You would think that maybe it's because more Democrats turned out. That's not what happened. We know that that's not what happened. In fact, when we look at partisanship, the Republicans probably had about a 3% party ID advantage nationally. Meaning, if you asked every voter nationally Do you, are you more like a Democrat or a Republican? The Republicans had a three-point advantage on that. And in Arizona, the Republicans had a six-point advantage. Georgia, a six-point. Nevada, a two-point advantage. Pennsylvania, Republicans had a three-point advantage. And New Hampshire, the partisanship was actually dead even. All of those things would have suggested that the Republicans should have killed. So how on earth did we win? The reason is independent voters. The party in power in midterm elections, tends to lose independent voters and tends to lose them by double digits. Go back to 2010, the Democrats lost independence by 18 points. Tell me about it. indeed, Congressman Oates knows well right in in and New Hampshire it was the same which I'll get to. In 2018 the Republicans lost independent voters by 13 points. So in 2022 the Democrats should have lost independence by double digits by way of by way of Joe Biden being the president. And yet, we ended up winning independence nationally by about two points. In Arizona, we won independence by sixteen. In Georgia, by eleven. In Nevada, by three. Pennsylvania, by twenty. New Hampshire, by eleven. How did this happen?
2: Yes, that's the doesn't it's it's a
0: great answer for what happened, but it sort of begs the why. So why did it happen?
1: Well, that's such a good question, Matt, and it allowed me to drink something in the middle of my filibuster. So I appreciate it.
0: No, that's perfect. I needed to give you a Rubio moment.
1: The I'm th- It's, it's a, not a teeny bottle, though. So when you, the reason, one of the reasons is, in fact, we're, we overthought or underthought presidential job approval. Mm. Here's what I mean by that. In 2018, Donald Trump's job approval on election day was 45 to 54. In 2022, according to the exit polls, Joe Biden's job approval rating was 44 to 45 identical numbers. Both were in difficult shape. But among those people who approved of Donald Trump in 2018, the Republicans won 77% of those voters. That's logical. But in 2022, if you approved to Joe Biden, the Democrats won 89%. So greater consolidation on the approval. On the disapproval, if you strongly disapproved of either Biden or Trump, 91 percent voted for the other party in both in both cases strongly disapproved but among those who somewhat disapproved of donald trump in 2018 the republicans lost those those voters sorry the democrats lost those voters by 29 points in 2022 among those who somewhat disapproved of joe biden the democrats actually won them by four points so this independent thing and the somewhat disapproved are kind of in tandem with each other, which is that, and, and goes back to that original set of data I was talking about, about these voters who, yeah, they said they disapproved of Biden, but they weren't voting for the Republicans.
0: All right. Now, I know Paul has got a burning question. Yep. It's it's sort of the, the, it relates to the choice pun that you made about when I mean, you're titling. Sure but I've got to follow up because you've just talked about something that's been a personal hobby horse of mine for a while. And in my writing life, I was very, very close to pitching a long form article that basically was along the lines, my title choice would have been, is approval rating, presidential approval rating meaningless? Is it, is it essentially, is it bullshit essentially at this point? And uh, It gets to kind of a question that I I now want to ask someone who's on the Mount Goldschmier, did we side of all pollsters, which is, are we fundamentally misreading what presidential approval tells us? It feels a little bit to me like an exercise where public opinion researchers ask people and they get, how are you feeling about the president? You're giving them a binary choice. And what you're really doing is you're giving them an opportunity to express in a kind of thumbs up, thumbs down fashion. Are you happy with stuff? Are you generally like, is the whole miasma of the world, is that vibing with you or not? And so when people say, well, I disapprove of Joe Biden, what they might really be saying is I'm just generally unhappy. I'm just generally not thrilled with the way things are going. Does that mean I'm going to vote against Joe Biden or against Democrats? No, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. I mean, maybe in the cases of strong partisans, it does. But anyway, I just thought I heard you say just like a whiff of my own personal theory on this. Am I full of it? Like you are, You are full of it.
1: Yes, uh, you are full of it. So I, 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 would, I would happily disagree with your theory. First of all, we're not giving people a binary choice, or at least most pollsters don't. Mm. So let's remember, it's not thumbs up, thumbs down. It's thumb up, thumb sideways, thumb really sideways, thumb down all the way, right? I see. So that four point scale that we give people allows us to take some judgment. And that's why these somewhat disapproves ended up being important. The second is, let's be clear about history. History still shows that presidential job approval has predicted how well the party in power would do for decades. This is the anomaly. So the reason Mm -hmm. for the anomaly isn't that presidential job approval ratings are off. It's that Republican candidates were hideous and that two thirds of the swing voters in most of these races were moderates and they were looking for candidates who looked like them and were like them. You're talking about campaigns that on, on the Republican side that did an incredibly good job of defining who the Republicans were and who the Democrats were. So in fact, to go to the choice thing, because I think this this is important, you had extreme Republicans on two pieces. One, Dobbs and abortion, big picture. So an extremism that the the country didn't agree with. And you have the MAGA movement. And MAGA Republicans is something that I have actually worked on from a brand perspective. My firm, along with the Center for American Progress and a couple of other firms, did a two-year program, a project where we wanted to brand Republicans as more than just Trump. We wanted it to be MAGA. We wanted to bring in the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts into the into the problem, into their problem in terms of a brand. And so you had extreme Republicans, you had responsible Democrats, which is we had good, strong candidates with a record to run on, and that then turned into instead of a referendum on the president, which is what almost every midterm election is, it turned into a choice about the candidates. And that is where we had the advantage. And then, of course, the secondary piece was choice, where we had an advantage on the issue of choice. So the Republicans were all excited because we're going to talk about inflation. We're going to talk about taxes. We're going to talk about crime. Okay, so they spent millions and millions of dollars talking about many of those things. Jobs and inflation, about 48 percent of all voters nationwide said jobs and inflation was the issue, not abortion. Among that 48%, Republicans won them by 45 points. But among people who said abortion was the most important thing, not the economy, that was 18% of the voters, we won them by 64. Among people who said abortion and the economy were important, we won them by 27. And among people who said neither abortion or the economy were most important, we won them by 20. So yes, they won the jobs and inflation voters, but not by the margin that they needed to. And we won the choice voters and everybody else overwhelmingly and in fact among swing voters, when you ask people what's more of a reason to support the Democrats the SCOTUS overturning Ray Roe, for example and eliminating the national right to an abortion among swing voters in key swing states. They said that was more of a reason to vote for the Democrats by a 48 point margin. So choice was absolutely real MAGA candidates also paid a real price. So. We know that about a third of Republicans nationally don't identify as MAGA Republicans, and the two-thirds say, yes, I am one, okay? So among voters who identified as a MAGA Republican nationally, Democrats won 2% of those voters. Among the Republicans who don't identify as, as MAGA, Democrats won 10%. So that's nice. It's a nice difference. It's real, But when you look at some of the key races, it's really real. Take, for example, Josh Shapiro's race in Pennsylvania. He won 5% of MAGA Republicans. I actually can't even believe he won five, but he won 5% of MAGA Republicans. He won 38% of non-MAGA Republican voters, whereas John Fetterman only won 11%. That's important, the 11% is important, but that 38 is, is remarkable. Or in Georgia, where we lose the governor's race because frankly, Abrams only got 2% of the MAGA Republicans, 7% of the non-MAGAs, but Warnock got 16% of the non-MAGA Republicans. And and to finalize the MAGA point, we know that when you look at all races across the country, if you were running as a MAGA Republican, somebody we would we would consider a MAGA Republican, they did about a half point worse than they lost by about 0.5 points, or they did 0.5 points worse, whereas the other Republicans we're winning by six points. So the, we actually have the data that shows that in all competitive districts, MAGA Republicans actually ended up losing by the teeniest margin, whereas all the other Republicans won. And even if you take all the districts, like even the non-competitive ones, the MAGA Republicans only won by probably about a point, whereas the other Republicans won by about six. So like this is very clear that voters in Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, all over the place were looking for candidates who spoke to them in the middle and not and not these mag extremists and choice was a key part of this at the end of the day so I've got lots more but figure you guys want to ask some questions let's take a break
2: we'll be right back let me just follow up because when when I was campaigning I always thought that the really important people that I needed to aim for were independence, independence and independent swing voters and I always explain to people you got 35% one way 35 on the other and everybody else is in the middle and of those in the middle 35 go one way 35 go another and there's this small percentage right. in the middle that are going to determine what happens in an election i haven't heard that too much anymore uh, until this interview with you so when we were de- Matt and I and a republican colleague who we have on another show, talked endlessly about whether Dobbs was going to make him, was going to be important, overturning Roe v. Wade. And our Republican friend kept saying, no, you people, you're all wrong. It's all about the economy. It's always about the economy, stupid. And the inflation is terrible. And Democrats are that's going down. It's 2010 all over again because yeah. inflation is crazy and you guys can't do anything about it. And and in light of that, Democrats put all their chips on the table on Dobbs. There was nothing but and choice as the issue for Democrats. So, did that actually work with the independents and swing voters? Was that the right call, or would it have mattered? Do you think whether or not we spent gobs of money on on choice just because of the natural inclination of the voters. Did it matter? Did Democrats make the right move
1: about going with choice? There's no question that Democrats made the right decision. And we were all nervous about it because we were worried that at some point the voters would would tire of hearing about it. And I do want to be clear. I'm not sure that if the Republicans didn't have the Dr. Oz's and the Blake Masters and the sort of hideous extra and, and Herschel Walker, the hideously extreme and out-of-touch candidates that they had. But that's their they have a primary system that naturally gravitates towards getting the most insane person elected. <laughs> and the litmus test on choice is particularly extreme. So right. you had vote, you had candidates all over this country who were not only anti-choice, there's anti-choice, and then there's insane. And the insane is no exceptions for rape, life, incest to the mother, the health of the mother. Almost all the major Republican candidates were in that insane category. And that category is a 10% of the vote, 12% of the vote. So talking about choice in the context of what the Supreme Court did was the right thing. In fact, in every single poll that we did, when we were testing, particularly against a a rapidly anti-choice Republican, it was the number one testing message. But again, Paul, you know this. At some point, you're in the middle of the campaign. You're like, God, we've been talking about this for like eight weeks. Doing maybe we got to talk about something else. We didn't only talk about abortion. That is that is also in a sort of overstated thing, not by you, but by the by the media. When you look at spending in congressional races, 175 million dollars of Democratic ads were spent talking about abortion. You know how many the Republicans did? Six. Six million dollars spent on the issue of abortion. That's it. 174 to six. But Democrats also spent $60 million talking about taxes, $60 million on crime, $21 million on inflation. So it wasn't just abortion. And in fact, in a place like Arizona, where so much of the conversation was about abortion because of Blake Masters, there was also lots of conversation about January 6th and his extremism in Pennsylvania. We we talked a lot about, sure, we talked about Mastriano on choice because he was incredibly extreme, but he also was at the Capitol on January 6th. Right. The level of extremism was just qualitatively different and allowed us to point these guys, largely men, as out of touch with reality and out of touch with the vote.
0: There's also a little bit of a dog that didn't bark quality to this, and it came through in your webinar presentation where you talked a little bit about the potential impact of legislation and Pundits are very fond of saying, "Well, what happens in Washington doesn't matter. It all goes over voters' heads. They don't understand the details. They like it, they don't even they don't even catch the yeah. gist." You name something, the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a self-owned by Democrats because people are like, "Where's my inflation getting reduced?" But you made, I thought, a compelling case that at the very least, we took potential targets off the table, and that there may have just been an overall vibe, a contrast of Democrats are getting some stuff done, yeah, and we're not setting ourselves up for the, I'm sorry, Paul, I don't want to give you flashbacks, but we're not setting ourselves up for a 2010-like experience with the ACA. So could you just talk us through a little yeah. bit, how, how should we think about the role of the truly historic amount of great legislation that Democrats yeah. were able to pass.
1: So look, I, I'm not willing to say that like we won because voters thought we were doing a great job. What I believe in terms of what the Democrats did, when you look at all the various things that were accomplished, and it is incredible, the number of things that got inco- accomplished, the bipartisan infrastructure, the gun violence prevention, safe for America plan, it's called, the CHIPS bill, inflation reduction act, American rescue plan. Those are five majorly significant pieces of legislation. All five of those pieces of legislation are favored by the voters on election day or were favored on election day, essentially two thirds to one third tops. And in fact, most of it is 75-25, right? So these are overwhelmingly positive. Whereas in 2010, as you just said to Paul, the ACA was negative, 38 to 45. The stimulus plan of Obama's was negative, 38 to 49. So in 2010, the Republicans had accomplishments of the Democrats to run against, whereas they didn't have anything to run against on that. So they tried to talk about inflation and they did. So why didn't that work? Well, part of it is also because the swing voters didn't actually believe that Republican candidates had any good idea to deal with inflation. We heard this in, in focus groups all over the country. I actually was amazed. Sometimes you sit in focus groups and, and swing voters who are disengaged with politics, so they don't pay as much attention. So you ask them sort of who's to blame with him in, for inflation, and they'll kind of default to Joe Biden or default to whoever's in charge. Not this time. When you would actually say who's to blame for inflation, they're like, eh, it's COVID, it's a supply chain. It's like the, the, the there, there's something global going on. These swing voters had a deeper understanding of like what was going on and weren't knee jerk just blaming Joe Biden. And they didn't think the Republicans had any plan to fix it either. So mm. they talked about 87 million jackbooted IRS thugs coming to get you. And I just don't think anyone gave a rat's ass about that. There's just no, no proof that they did. There are exceptions, right? In New York, there's very clearly what happened in New York was was different. New York was a conversation about crime. But New York has had a two-year conversation about cash bail that has been controversial. And we saw this in last year in Long Island, where the Democrats last year, I, I don't mean 2022, I mean 2021, where in the off year, the Democrats got annihilated on Long Island, largely over this issue of cash bail. And that's what happened statewide. But that was a two-year conversation, and they and and the Republicans fed into that. And they there's a lot of dog whistling there, and it's all bullshit. And it's not true. But they did an effective job of that. But that's also why it worked in New York, but didn't work in a place like Pennsylvania that doesn't have that, and didn't work in any other place. Can I ask? I just want to follow up, and because
2: if I anytime anybody mentions 2010, yeah. and I talk about it, I start drooling. And that they have to put me in a straitjacket and haul me away because I had a very painful experience of being out there as a congressman. Everybody said you can't say you're a congressman because they hate you. Yeah. And I, I've said I voted for healthcare, they hate you. And I'm defending on, on healthcare, and we saved the economy, but nobody cares about any of that. And I'm trying to figure out you you talked about the numbers of the the going into 2010 about healthcare was negative and saving the economy was negative and and fixing saving the global economy was 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 negative and then saving the american economy with stimulus was all negative so 2022 it seemed that voters didn't look at the quote big spending democratic initiatives as negative no. what what was the difference and what what is to be learned By contrasting this 2010 and 2022, was it just messaging? Was it actual accomplishment? Was it the mindset? Was it COVID? Was it,
1: what was it? So I truly believe COVID is a unique piece of this, Paul. And and we have to kind of understand that again, in in a 2010 environment, if you took 2010 and had the same conversation about Joe Biden and inflation, and we didn't have COVID, I believe the voters would have said it's Joe Biden's fault, right? And I believe they would have been angry about spending, et cetera. They were much more rational because they knew what we had to go through over the last couple of years and that we weren't always, all of us weren't always going to get it right. But they were giving more of a pass on things than we're kind of used to the voters doing. And again, I don't want to ignore, if we didn't have crazy Republican extreme candidates, I don't know that this same story happens. Like what we see from the voters, Republican turnout was high, Democratic turnout was high, Republican turnout was higher. We won more of these independent voters. Why? Because they rejected the candidates on the other side. We won these voters because the Republican candidates were voting for the party and people voting for the Democrats were voting either for our candidate or against the other candidate. So campaigns and candidates matter. Donald Trump lost this election so badly when you think about it, because when you think about all of the candidates that he got engaged with, and here's where candidates and campaigns matter, he lost all over the place. He only won like... Even he won. Nevada was his endorsed candidate. That's the only governor's race in the House. He won four major targeted races and the Democrats didn't even play in two of those races. Like it's incredible. And in his secretary of state's races where either he were, was endorsing an election denier or an election denier lost, or an ele- excuse me, an election denier was running in like the most competitive Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, they lost. Right. So the extremism mattered. And that secretary of state thing, Paul, you know this well, we're talking about down ballot where the voters right. probably don't even know the names of these people. But they did in this case because of the uniqueness of their positioning and, and how, how poorly those, those sort of folks were perceived. I also don't want to give America a pass. 48 percent of the voters of Georgia, 48 and a half, I think, voted for a man who I don't know can sign his own name. And that should also bother us. And oh, so yeah. as much as I take great pleasure in all the wins that we just talked about, some of these wins were by the very smallest of margins, or we'd be talking about something very, very different. Well, so look a fundamental problem in this country where some of those folks are 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 able to get elected. I'm not knee-jerk saying like any Republican can't or shouldn't win. I wouldn't vote for them, but 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 I'm I'm not that knee-jerk. But Herschel Walker should not be getting 48 plus percent of the vote in any state. You
0: know what H.L. Macon said, a man who would not end up on Mount Goldschmier, <laughs> democracy is the theory that the people know what they want, and they deserve to get it good and hard. And if we had elected Herschel Walker, I think that would very much have applied as we watch him for sure attempt to ward off vampire attacks in yeah. the Senate. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about this, this last piece, kind of this common thread of yeah. MAGA candidates. When you are talking about this two-year-long effort that you've had with our friends at the Center for American Progress to sort of delineate and define and stick Republicans justifiably with this MAGA Republican differentiator, this label. It really reminds me of something that you helped us run on in a campaign in 2012, back when MAGA was Tea Party. I'm old enough to remember when now MAGA is the new Tea Party. And we ran campaigns, which were, we were able to paint even relatively moderate Republicans with the brush of, look, they're in league with these Tea Party Republicans. And now we're kind of in the same boat. I want to ask you about the President Biden of all of this, because yeah. we have seen over and over again, pundits, and I guess that's what Paul and I have become. Sorry, man. They've said, all right, look, President Biden, he's lost a step. His political instincts are from a, a, a out of time. He doesn't get it time and again. It just seems like he has a pretty good gut feel for things. Now, look, maybe behind the scenes, you and our cap friends, Naveed Nayak, like people like that may have been whispering in his ear and saying, here's the deal, Sparky. This is what you've got to be talking about. (laughs) But he does seem to have made the decision to launch his MAGA semi-fascist attack this fall. Yeah. And I want to ask you about that. How was he right? Do we have yes. evidence that, that that was the right thing to do, even amongst all the pearl-clutching
1: from the media? Yeah, I mean, we, they, he's the one, I have to give him the credit for it, right? The, the presentation went and sort of this is from the folks at CAP that this is something that we think could brand the Republicans. The notion was, look, the Republicans have done such a good job of branding the Democrats as socialists. And in part, that's because we actually have some socialists, which isn't very helpful. But it's also just because they drive a message and message of fear and do it very, very well. But more importantly, what they decide and what they have decided is we want to brand the Democrats for what they are tomorrow. Like we're not talking about today. We're talking about tomorrow. So we have the same conversation where what do we want to brand the Republicans two years from now, four years from now, if there is no Donald Trump? What do we want? And that's how the MAGA thing sort of came about. And it was Naveen Nayak's sort of brilliant idea. But I have to give the president credit because the president's the one who was like, yeah, that's right. And we're going to ultra MAGA them. And he got relentlessly attacked. And we were attacked by any number of folks in the establishment. Like, ah, what's a MAGA? It sounds like something I order at the fast food chain. Like that, that doesn't mean anything, but it did. And it meant something larger to the voters than just Donald Trump. It meant a level of extremism that they couldn't tolerate. So I give the president and his his team a ton of credit for taking up the mantle, and because without the bully pulpit, I don't think the the MAGA brand expands and, and sticks the way that it did. Let's
0: take a break. We'll be right back.
2: If we take a look at the rejection of the extremism by the voters, and, yes. and uh, Nate Cohen in the Times said there was about a five-point MAGA penalty for Republicans, okay. but- we talked earlier about the candidate quality, or lack thereof, of the Republicans. Are, is that the same? Is that the same equation? Yeah. Or So MAGA and candidate quality are the same? Or can you differentiate, say, Herschel Walker who, yeah, he was MAGA, but he was also insane. And so you'd
1: say, well, that's MAGA plus. Yeah, well, I I do think there's a difference, right? There's a difference between Doug Mastriano even and Dr. Oz. They both lost, but there is a major difference in terms of the kind of qualitative level of extremism. But another piece of it that is sort of the, I think, a lesson that, that some of these folks learned maybe, and Carrie Lake would be in this case as well. This notion of like, I'm gonna pretend I'm Donald Trump. I'm not gonna to speak to the media. I'm only gonna to talk to like these narrow um Facebook groups that are that are all my people. I'm only gonna to speak to the most conservative press. I'm not gonna to respond to the Philadelphia Inquirer or the major papers that are out there. Those are the folks who I think did even worse and had a left that that so they so I don't think that every MAGA candidate was created equally, but I do think that the MAGA brand. Probably punished all the candidates. Just if you if you took the Trump, the sort of Trump method to the extreme of I'm ignoring all sort of norms, I I, I think you paid a bigger price.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, let's let's. This may have the quality of saying, "Hey, Mr. Fox, how's your henhouse doing?" But you, I'm not talking about the polls? Bob, I am talking about where I'm going with this. See, this is why you're the best in the business. Look, you do you you are the founding partner of one of the biggest polling firms in the world, and you have worked hard. I'm going to give you some credit. You guys have talked consistently and opening and you've led consortia of other pollsters. You've worked very, very hard on this question of what may have caused at least the public polling that the normie world can see, what may have caused it to be off in 2016 and 2020, and I want to be clear to differentiate here, and you'd probably be better at this, between error, just just being off, that happens in polling, and bias, which is you're consistently leaning in one direction, and in those two cycles, we saw not just being off, but being off in the direction of Democrats. How did you guys do this last cycle, and how did polling in general do? And I'm only asking that last part because I I think we've got to a place where the public's perception of polling matters. It's become part of the political conversation. So
1: where are we at? So that's a a great question, Matt. And I. And so let's sort of divide it into two. So let's first start with sort of how good was the the polling on the private side in general. I I can talk about my firm, but other firms had the same kind of experience here. So in 2016, we know the polls were off. We all thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. We were wrong. And so after 2016, we the pollsters looked and we looked at, in particular, the exit polls, and we looked at the difference between the exit polls and who actually voted. Once we looked at the voter files, now we can look at voter files, and we have a much more sophisticated way of saying like, hey, the exit polls told us 52% of the voters were female. But when we look at the voter file, it's actually 54%. So the exit polls were off by 2% in that context. Well, where the exit polls were really off, particularly before 2016, was how many non-college educated voters, particularly non-college educated white people, were in the electorate. So we were talking to far too many college educated folks and not enough non-college. That didn't matter before 2010, before 2014, because that wasn't a major indicator of how you would vote, non-college, college. college. But post-2010 and particularly 2014, college education became a critical dividing line and it has become even more so. So in 2018, all the the pollsters talked to many, many more non-college educated white people. And by and large, the polls in 2018 were right. And we figured we got it. It's all good. 2020 comes along and the exact same thing happens. The polls are off. And as Matt said, they're all off in terms of error and they are all biased towards the Democrats. So following 2020, my firm, along with five of the largest Democratic polling firms, did a major, major project where we looked at thousands and thousands of interviews. And we then did a a project over the next year in Wisconsin to try to figure out how do we fix this thing? What do we do? Because what we learned was that the reason that the polls were off in 2020 was something called non-response bias, which means there are people who didn't want to talk to us. That is a really hard thing to solve because I can't force people to talk to us. So in 2021, we did an experiment. We did door-to-door polling, literally. The way we did it back in, it, we, you know, it wasn't even alive, the way it was done when polling was first invented. We mailed people surveys and sent them $20 in the survey and said, fill it out. We called people up and said, we're calling from the Trump Institute. We wanna do whatever we could do to try to get people to talk to us. Now, I'm not gonna get into what some of those things are because that's a little bit of the secret sauce, not only for my firm, but, but, but on the Democratic side. But needless to say, what it resulted in is in 2020, there was error in statewide polls. The statewide polls were off by about 3%. So what does error mean? Just to go to what you said, error means the difference between the poll and the actual result. So a 3% error, I said, you would, you would win by two, you won by five, right? That's a 3% error. The bias is I said the Democrat was going to win by one. Instead, the Democrat won by four. So that's the bias. So in 2020 statewide, the error and bias were both about 3%. And in House races, it was even bigger, 3.5% error and 3.3% of the bias. So everything biased towards the Democrats. This time in 2022, in statewide races and House races, the error was around 2%, which is completely the norm and expected. And the bias in statewide races was less than a percent towards the Democrats, and in House races was literally zero, meaning we had just as many polls that showed a Republican winning as a Democrat winning, so there was no bias. That's what we want. So do we feel good about 2024? Absolutely not. None of us know, because again, we've been to this dance, and particularly when Donald Trump is on the ballot, something seems to happen with stuff. And so we think that we've come up with some things we hope are helping but it's not perfect. Let me say, well, we don't know if it's perfect. Let me say one other thing, which is about the public polls, because I think this is really important. The public polls were also generally good with a major, major exception. And that is Republican aligned firms, some of which I think are complete frauds, publishing polls in order to influence the coverage.
0: You're so- talking about like the Trafalgar's For example, the world here. For example,
1: I I try not to say Voldemort's name, but yes, right. So, for example, a firm like Trafalgar, but there are others who are in this mix. So, when you looked at the nonpartisan polls, meaning media polls or polls, Marist, Quinnipiac, et cetera, in the major Senate races, for example, the nonpartisan polls were all very, very good. They had Mark Kelly winning by three, he won by five. They had Raphael Warnock winning by two, he won by one. They had Fetterman winning by two, he won by four and a half. They had Adam Laxalt winning by a half a point. Cortez Masto won by a point. Those are good. Those are very good polls. But when you look at the Republican aligned firms that, that flooded the, and again, I'm not talking about professionals like me. I'm talking about people who are clearly meant to flood the zone with crap data Mehmet Oz was up by two points in those polls. Herschel Walker was up by three. Maggie Hassan, Paul knows this. Maggie Hassan in the Republican polls, they had her tied. She won by nine. They had Mark Kelly up by the teeniest amount. Okay, so that's fine. And they had Laxalt up by five. So these Republican-leaning firms, these Republican-aligned things, were clearly trying to either raise money, change the narrative, do something, but it is why real clear politics you should ignore because they include those folks and 538 does a good job of trying to weight down those folks to make sure that they are not overly seen but real clear politics was real crappy polling this year so Gallup came
2: out this morning with some numbers, and they tallied up 2022 polls and found that 45% of Americans identified themselves as Republicans or GOP-leaning compared to 44% who call themselves Democrats. If my math is right, that leaves about 11% floating around who don't know what they are. But- 2022 was the first time in a long time since 1991 that Republicans were higher. We're already in the 2024 presidential cycle. We're trying to figure out what it is that we're going to sell. I mean, what are we selling? Are we selling? What are we, we going to sell in 2024? And if Democrats want to sell uh, what they did up until 2022 in terms of the economy, boy, wasn't that great. Is that gonna win for us? Do we have to get better at telling people what we do? Do people really care? Or are we headed for like 10% of America people and of that 10%, maybe maybe one third, maybe there's 3% at play here in the 2024 election that's gonna decide the whole thing. What's a poor
1: Democrat to do now looking at 2024? Tell us, oh guru. I wish I I wish I knew, but one thing I want to I want to sort of pause on. I actually don't think it's 3%. I actually do think it's a larger number because what the election of 2022 tells us is that in particular, Republican voters were willing to look and say, is this candidate right by me? Because elections are still choices. Democrats overwhelmingly vote for the Democrats. So, I don't know that Democrats have traditionally been known as the most unified in the planet Paul. Have we been? But at yes. least in 2022 we were. But a chunk of Republican voters said, is this candidate right? I don't think they said, is this party right? They may over time, but they said, is this candidate right? So there's still going to be choices. And 24 is going to be a choice between Joe Biden and some Republican. Could be Donald Trump again. Could be somebody else. That choice is going to be the relevant piece. What are we talking about? I have no idea because I also think that Kevin McCarthy is going to have such egg on his face over the next two years. That, that that I hope the voters look and say, I don't want any part of a 15 vote for Speaker madness, where Matt Gates holds all the keys to the castle, because I wouldn't give that guy the keys to my Pinto. Like, come on. Like- well,
0: I, I mean, first of all, egg is probably the best possible version of that for Kevin McCarthy.
2: From your lips to God's ears.
1: Yeah. All
0: right. Let, I, let's close out on this. Is kind of a this is kind of a personal, emotional question for you because most people don't get to experience elections the way you do. You kind of sit at the epicenter of these streams of data and information. You're talking to the candidates. You're talking to operatives who are on the ground. Like you're talking to people like me 10 years ago. As a matter of fact, you were talking to people like me 10 years ago. And or, I me. Remember- or me. Yes, or me. Right? Oh. And I remember a certain election where I was a campaign manager and, and we were down. We we were way down. Our best guess was that we were about six to 10 points down. That was just, just our best set of information. And election night rolls around. I start getting calls from you and other consultants like, hey, Matt, I think you guys might have won this thing. And James <laughs> Delory gets on the phone with me. Matt, I, I I'm pretty sure you guys won this. I'm like, no, no, it's impossible because all my priors were there's yeah. just no way. So I want to take you back to the beginning of this conversation. You were saying that none of us really expected this. Yeah. What was your truly like truth serum to you? What was your what was your expectation of what was really going to happen coming in here? And what was your sort of emotional reaction to it? Like how how have you experienced the last couple of months and has it changed any of your thinking about yeah. what's going on in America?
1: Um, so I it's it's a great question, Matt. And and everybody will tell you that I was a total miserable prick in the weeks leading up to this election, even more but so just than then, you. even <laughs> just more then. So than usual. More oh, so than usual. Okay, you. fair, fair. So I was pretty down because I knew how tough, and I live in New York, so I'm a I'm a weird political consultant that lives in New York, not in DC and I'm grateful for it every day but I knew that New York things were going poorly and so it was influencing my brain every everything that I was doing if I could have taken New York out of the picture and looked at all the data and looked at it academically I might have suggested that the democrats were going to have a fine night in fact I was doing five governor's races. I knew that four of the five, we were going to win relatively. And these were competitive races in Pennsylvania, Maine, like Connecticut. These are, it's not like these were not real races, but we knew New York was going to be tighter than than it should have been. So I was in a particularly bad headspace. Looking at the data, I should have been like, oh, things are going to be okay. But that's impossible. Because again, I also knew that history said, even if we were tied in a race, if it was 48-48, We're going to lose that race because the vote shifts against the party in power in these midterm elections. So it truly was historic. And when we, when everything started happening, I really couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it for, for days. It's that historic what happened and how different it was. And we have to appreciate that. And again, we've gone through all the reasons why it was, but it's, it's why, even though on paper, maybe I should have felt better, no rational human being could have felt other than pessimistic going into it. (laughs) All right. I'm going to give
0: one final, consider this like a web bonus here. How did you end up in two movies, man?
1: By complete circumstances, the answer of a mutual friend was, his brother was producing a movie in New York and said, the director wants an actual political consultant to come in and and give some advice to make sure that the scenes, he's a, the director's a guy named Derek C. in France, and he's a, he's a accuracy freak. And so I went to Schenectady where the movie was being filmed, The Place Beyond the Pines. Please go watch it. I make like, 0.01 0.01 cents every time you, you watch it. So please do. And and I got there and they, they were filming a scene where Bradley Cooper was running for attorney general. And I, I get there and they've got all these flags set up on the stage with like 20 American flags and 20 New York state flags. And I was like, no, 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 no. It does not work like that. And I was like, oh, and the American flag has to be taller than the New York flag. And the director's like, what? He was like, I can't believe it. And of course, this is stuff that from, from advanced work and Paul knows from being a member and, and sort of the stuff that we do. And it was great. And he was like, this is what we want. And so I got to film in the movie. He had me film some some scenes, all ad lib. So I'm talking about running statewide in New York, all things that I'm used to talking about, having done campaigns here for years. And then I was in a second movie where I, I, I'm a pundit on a, my friends from New York One where they were using the studio. They needed somebody and they called me up. So watch Nonstop by Liam Neeson or Place Beyond the Pines with... Bradley Cooper, Mendez, and Ryan Gosling. That's how I got my SAG card that I am very, very proud of. Man, you're famous. You're famous. Not at all.
0: Well, in 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 the circles that we run in, like the uh, the nerd famous circles, you are extremely famous, and it's well deserved. You are on Mount Goldschmier. You're on the <laughs> Mount Rushmore of American political consultants, worldwide political consultants. Jeffrey Pollock, it has absolutely been worth the wait. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank Thanks, you. Jeffrey. Thank you, Bob.